Philippians 1, we'll read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to bow before you again. We're grateful, Father, to be able to pause in the middle of busy weeks and to look to you. And as we have sung, to, to seek to be filled from you. God, we pray that um, as we spend a few moments around your word and looking to you, that you would come near and give us what we stand in need of. God, help us to, to feel our need and then give us yourself. God, we pray for um, our, our nation as we uh, approach another election season. And God, we ask that you would turn hearts of people. We pray, God, that you would uh, awaken your churches to cry out to you. God, we think of um, not only our nation, but God, unrest around the world. And God, we pray that you would open doors for the gospel to go forward. We thank you, Father, for uh, reports we hear from time to time of people who are making efforts to go into hard places. And we pray, God, that you would bless them and help them to... Um, Endure the difficulties that will come in those places and that you would open doors for them to speak the truth and open hearts to hear the truth and to receive it. But God, we do continue to think of many around us whose hearts are closed, who've heard the truth, but God, they have not responded or they've rejected. God, we ask that you would continue to lift high Christ and that you would draw men to Him. Glorify Yourself, Father, in us, in this body, but God, also in our land. We pray, Father, that You would um, work in ways that we can scarce think about or that we've only read about. 
God, we don't want to ask, though, that you would do that out there and ignore the fact that we are a needy people. And God, we pray that you would give us more of yourself. God, we pray that you would not let us to feel independent or in some measure of independence from you. But God, we pray that the the more we see of ourselves and the more we see of of you, that it would only lead us to to feel the more dependent and glad that you are such a God that we can lean upon and never worry about you stumbling or falling short. You are a rock. And God, we, we fly to you. God, as we finish out this week, go to work or to school or around the house, God, interacting with others, we pray, God, that the reign of Christ Jesus would be evident in the little decisions that we make and in the way that we interact with one another. God, we pray that you would make us to be a holy people, as holy as saved sinners can be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Well, we'll try to pick up tonight where we left off Sunday morning in Paul's prayer for the Philippians. We are in a paragraph that runs from verse 3 down through verse 11. and verse 3, Paul introduces his prayer saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. You may remember, it's been a little while ago now since we looked at it, but you may remember that you could almost remove verse 4 through verse 8 and read verse 3 and then pick up again in verse 9. And it makes perfect sense because while he begins to introduce his prayer, it's as if he gets sidetracked a bit and he feels like he has to explain why he prays the way he does or why with every remembrance of them he gives thanks. And so he gives some of his reasons for that, what he sees in God's work in them that moves him to pray for them the way that he does every time that he thinks about them. And then in verse 9, he picks up the prayer again, or he actually prays, if you will, and he gives us the content of his prayer in verse 9. It's just a short little bit where he tells us that he prays that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And then he begins to give us some reasons or motives for that. He prays that their love would abound in this way. In verse 10, we looked at this part Sunday, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So, Paul prays that they'll have a selfless love that is ever increasing in what we call the environment, or you might think of it as the realm of experiential knowledge of Christ and a discernment that's able to put this love into practice in the life that you live. To the end that you are able to approve the things that are excellent or an alternate reading there was to distinguish between the things that differ. And if you remember, the idea is not so much that you can tell right from wrong, although certainly you want to do that. But more than that, better from best. It's to to know what the thing is that you should do. 
of all the choices, of good choices, which is the one that you should do in your pursuit of Christ and in your desire to bring glory to God in all that you do, of these good choices, which is the best. And so Paul is saying, in essence, that this is the, the kind of thing that you need, what he prays for, this love that abounds in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you can live a life that approves the things that are excellent, Make these kinds of choices. This is um, such a necessary thing as we we talked about Sunday. uh, Knowing the right thing to do. The right thing to say. When to say it. When to do it. When not to do it. And how are you going to know that except that God himself gives that to you. And so Paul prays. Um, As he prays, the, the... thrust of his prayer, the emphasis of his prayer is that you would have this abounding love, this ever-increasing love. And I mentioned on Sunday a couple of reasons why love might have such a place of prominence or emphasis in his prayer. You know, why does it say love that abounds in knowledge and discernment instead of knowledge that abounds in love? Why does love kind of have this preeminent spot? I mentioned a couple of reasons, one being that love is the fulfillment of the law, Another that uh, is a, a chief grace. You know, we talked about 1 Corinthians 13. If I, if I have, you know, all these gifts, but I don't have love, I, I have nothing. But let me give you a couple of more. And I've kind of held off on that because we needed to get to verse 10 before they might make sense. So if kind of the goal is that you have this kind of a love that abounds in knowledge and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent, that's what he wants you to be able to do by having this abounding love. Why, again, is love then the the prominent thing that he mentions? And I think it is that for a couple of reasons. One, a couple of more reasons, we could say. One, um, let me put it to you this way. Have you ever known the right thing to do and then did the exact opposite? Like, I see... This is the right thing, and then you go that way. You, you, you see other people do it, and you might scratch your head, but then we do it ourselves. I know this isn't the best choice, but, I mean, sometimes it's as simple as at the dinner table, right? Do I really need that next piece of cake? No, I don't, but, you know. Uh, so in very little ways we do it, but we do it in bigger ways also. We know the right thing to do sometimes, and we just don't choose the right thing. Knowing the right thing is important. How are you going to choose the right thing if you don't know what it is? But it may not be enough to know. If you don't love what is right, then how are you going to choose what's right? If you don't love what's right, then how often will you choose the wrong thing even though you know it's the wrong thing? And so Paul prays that you would have a love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment So that not only would you know what the right thing is to do, but that you would love the right thing. You'd want to do the right thing, the thing that glorifies God. Perhaps a second reason that's kind of related to the first. You know, if if you are the person who says, well, I can remove emotion and logically look at a thing and analyze it and say, this is the right thing to do. So this is what I'm doing regardless of emotion. You still need love because... Several reasons, but let me give you one. Let's say that someone else is involved, and so you're trying to lead them to do the right thing. You see it, 
And maybe they see it too, but their emotions are involved. And so you see it. And if you don't have love, then you can be like a hammer, you know? No, this is the right thing. This is what we're doing. And you drag them kicking and screaming to the right thing where, you know, you're not being loving. And while you want to point them to truth and to do the right thing, you want to do it with gentleness. And so you still need love. And so again, Paul's emphasis in his prayer, the prominent thing in his prayer, the actual petition that he makes is that you would have a love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, as we move into the second half of verse 10 and into verse 11, we have a couple of motives or goals that Paul has in mind as he prays for the Philippians. Um, further goals. You know, the, the, what he's already said so that you'd be able to approve the things that are excellent. It's kind of immediate. It's, it's a day-by-day thing that they need to do. But now, bigger picture goals in mind. And he has a couple that he mentions. One of these is we might say his primary or his ultimate goal. And the other is the penultimate goal or a secondary goal. One leads to the other. Both are important, but one is primary over the other. Um, we'll look at the secondary goal first because that's how he addresses it first. He, he deals with it first. And the secondary goal is in reference to the Philippians. The primary goal is in reference to God. In the second half of verse 10 and the first half of verse 11, he deals with this secondary goal, if you will, in reference to the Philippians. So in verse 10, he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Here is one of the motives or the goals that he has in mind as he prays for the Philippians. Let's unpack this. There are several words here I'd like to address. The first one is the word sincere. There are a number of words that Paul could have used here for the idea of sincerity or purity, but the one he uses uh, is the idea of having, uh, of being without alloy. No mixture. It focuses on a lack of mixed motives. Having an integrity that is transparent because it has nothing to hide. It's the kind of idea that Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians 2.17 when he said that we are not like many peddling the word of God. Those people who watered down the truth. We're not like them. But as from God we speak, pardon me, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. But as from sincerity, our motives are transparent. There's not a mixture of motives. We don't you know, put on a, a false front. We don't show you one thing, but there's another thing lurking behind. There's a transparency. Another way to, to translate this idea is uh, something that can stand the light of day. So in the shadows, it might look one way, but you bring it out into the light of day and, oh, I can see it now. And Paul is saying there's a life here being lived that can stand the light of day. You bring it out and what you see is what you get. So not only has he lived that kind of life himself as he expresses himself to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, but he prays for the Philippians that they would have this kind of life, that you would live a life that's blameless or, uh, pardon me, that, that's sincere, that's, that's pure, that doesn't have mixed motives. A second word that 
he uses here is blameless. And there's a question about whether he means blameless themselves, that the Philippians would be blameless themselves, or whether they would be blameless toward others, or not give offense toward others. Uh, the word is used two other times, and it's used each way. <laughs> uh, one way in one verse, and the other way in another verse. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. I want my conscience to be blameless before God and before men. But then in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, Paul again writes to the Corinthians and he says, give no offense or be blameless either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Don't give an offense to them. Don't be blameworthy. And so which one does he mean here? And I'm not sure that it's possible to, to definitively say it's obviously this. But I think we can say that if you live a life that is blameless, then you're not putting yourself in a position to cause other people offense. So I, I'm not trying to like waffle, but both are true. If you don't stumble along and put, you know, put stumbling blocks in front of other people, then you don't cause them to stumble. And that is part of the idea here. You're not causing people to stumble. So it's not a blamelessness in the sense of, of perfection. You've never done anything wrong because that'd be nobody. But it is not to cause to stumble. Not stumbling along yourself and not causing other people to stumble. So he prays for them that they would have a light that we could say stands the light of day. It's transparent. And it's a life that isn't stumbling along in Christianity, causing other people to stumble along the way. And he prays that they would have both of these qualities until the day of Christ. Until is not the best word here. He does use that word in verse 6 in reference to the day of Christ, but it is a different word being translated there. Here, the word better translated to or for or in and the idea is I think with a view to that day or in light of that day in light of the fact that Christ is coming you should live a life that's blameless sincere I just put them backwards there but sincere and blameless so Paul prays that they will have an abounding love so that they live transparent, unmixed lives that aren't stumbling along, causing others to stumble, and that they do this with a view to the day of Christ. What is that day? The day of Christ. Well, it's the day of Christ's return. When He comes back and He judges and our deeds are made manifest, that day, when He comes back, let Him find you sincere and blameless. Live with a view to that day and the expectation of that day. Now again, let's pause for a second and kind of put together what we have so far. He prays again that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge or experiential knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent to the end 
that they may live transparent lives that don't stumble along causing other people to stumble because Christ is coming. Now, this prayer is balanced. I mentioned this um, Sunday, but we see it again here. It's balanced. Paul doesn't ignore their present situation. He's not saying, in essence, um, you know, forget what's going on right now. Just endure because Jesus is coming back. He doesn't say that. He doesn't ignore what's right in front of them. He's very aware of what they're dealing with. He'd been to Philippi. He'd been to the Philippian jail. He understands something of the, the, um, the resistance that they might feel in the culture of Philippi. And he writes in verse 29 of Philippians 1, for To you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. He's not ignoring present reality. He understands that we live here and now. And that our love must abound here and now. However, he also has in mind that there is more than the here and now. We live here and now in the light of, if we can say it this way, there and then. And so the motivation for his prayer includes how they'll live now. But it does so as it looks to that day when their lives must stand before the light of that day. That day when everything will be revealed. Revealed not to God, because God already knows. It's not like suddenly God's going to say, oh, that's what you're really like. It's not only just you know, that your life's going to be revealed to you, but to the creation. Our lives will be made manifest. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we looked at it a while back. For you must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Do you see what is motivating him here? Why does he want their love to abound? So that when Christ comes... They will be found with unmixed motives, with transparent lives, not having to cringe before him, not stumbling and causing other people to stumbling, but to stumble, but abounding in love. Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 11, he continues the thought, and it's kind of the other side of the coin. You know, don't have a life like this, but rather having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. His prayer is not just that you don't stumble or that you don't have mixed motives, but that you be filled. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. My translation says, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's the idea that you have been filled and you continue to be filled. Their lives throughout their days as Christians are to be characterized by being filled with the fruit of righteousness or the, the fruit that's characterized by righteousness. Now, this is important. Notice how he qualifies this. 
It is the fruit of righteousness, but he says it's the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the fruit that is produced in you only because of the work of Christ. It's produced in you because of the present power of the indwelling Christ in you. By virtue of your union with Christ. It's not something you are producing yourself. Christ produces it. And this is his motive in regards to the Philippians. You have been united to Christ. Live in a way that reflects that. Live transparently. Live in a way that's not stumbling along. Causing other people to stumble. Live in light of that day. Live being filled by Christ with the fruit of righteousness. So this is his motive in regards to the Philippians. Let me move on now to his motive as regards God. Or the the ultimate motive that he has. The primary motive that sits above this motive. And we see this in the second half of verse 11. Verse 11 again, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. As he points to this goal, there's a question of whether he means the fruit of righteousness is to the praise and the glory of God or, or whether this entire prayer and everything that he's saying here is to the praise or to the glory and praise of God. And grammatically, it could be either. But I do think that he's, he's talking about everything that he's saying here. His, his motive, his goal, as he prays for the Philippians, but also for his own life as he lives, is the glory of God. And so he looks at them and moved by the glory of God, his concern for the glory of God. In the Philippians as individuals, in the Philippian church, he prays for them. And this is his prayer in light of that glory. He speaks of the glory of God. This is the outshining of God's excellence. God's character is excellent. His works are excellent. And the outshining of that, the manifestation of that is His glory. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens are telling the glory of God. They, they reveal and demonstrate God's glory. We look and we see it. It's on display for us. The expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Psalm 8, 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. It's on display for us to look at. We see it there in His creation. We also see it in redemption. God demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We see His love on display. And there's a glory there as we see that. So God's glory is the the demonstration or the, the revelation of His excellence. But He also speaks of the praise of God. And the order here, I think, is important. To the glory and praise of God. When God displays His glory, the proper response to that glory is praise. We see it. How do you respond? Well, we should respond with praise. It's praiseworthy. Praise is the recognition of His excellence. 
Praise is the expression. It's the, the conscious acknowledgement that we have beheld His glory. And so God shows Himself to us in various ways. We behold Him. We praise Him. I was thinking about how to illustrate this perhaps. And I was thinking about a building. We talked last, we talked Sunday about an aesthetic, you know, seeing things in proper proportion. There are certain people who have a better aesthetic perhaps than others, and they seem to know what goes together. And you can see this in homes as well. Some people just really know how to put a home together. And so imagine that you have a person who, you know, is that. They're that kind of person. And they're going to build a home. And you know they're going to build a home. You've heard about it. Maybe you've even seen the plans. You see these lines on paper. You drive by and there's a foundation. Have, honestly, have you ever driven by a foundation? Maybe one or two of you, but most people. Have you ever driven by a foundation and thought, oh, what a house? I mean, uh, I have a neighbor that recently built. And when they poured the foundation, I drove by and I couldn't tell anything about the house by that foundation. Other than the fact, somebody's fixing to build right there. You, know, you just don't see anything there. They begin to frame. I, unless you are a framer, do you drive by and think, there's some framing right there, you know. <laughs> I'm impressed with this house. Well, no. But eventually the house is built, and maybe you're invited over, and you walk around the house, and you walk through the house, and you see this house has been well put together. It's been well thought out. The flow in the house, all that kind of good stuff. You know, It is nice, and you see it, and you think, wow. And now you see something of the glory of this house and the the thinking of the person who put this house together, the excellence of it. And it evokes a response. Have you ever seen this, the show Fixer Upper? What? Um, It's okay to admit it. Yeah. Um, You know, they go into these homes that need to be renovated and they renovate the homes. And I don't think they still do this. I don't think the show's even still on. But at one time, they, they made these huge pictures of the home as it was before they began working, like on a billboard-sized thing. And they put it out in front of the house. And part of the deal is, if you have them come and renovate your home, you can't drive by while they're doing it. You can't come walking through. So you see some plans, maybe you hear some of their ideas, but you don't get to see anything until they're done. So they bring you to this reveal and what you see is this huge picture of the house as it was. And they roll that picture back and you see what they've done to it. And often it's kind of a night and day transformation, isn't it? The plans that the people hear about for their home, you know, that only translates so far. But when they pull those screens back and you see what they've done, so often the expressions on their faces and the words out of their mouth were like, wow. They see now. And there's a response. And the glory of God is the display, it's the revealing of his excellence, and it's far better than fixer upper. And it should evoke a response from us of praise. And so as Paul prays, the primary motive that moves him, the goal that Paul has in mind for the Philippians 
is for more than their spiritual maturity, as important as that is. It is imperative. It's more than their preparedness for the day when Christ returns, even though that also is imperative. It is ultimately for the glory of God on that day and the praise of God by the creation as they look at His work of redemption. When God created the earth, it was a remarkable, wonderful work. Each day, He looks at His creation. It's good. It's very good. He rests from His work because He's done. But as wonderful as that work is, it pales in comparison to His work of the new creation. And the glories of His character and of His grace are on much greater display in His redemption than they ever were or can be in the work of creation. And on that day, surely, I mean, how do we even fathom it? When there are sinners like those in Philippi, sinners like us in this room, who've been redeemed by grace and transformed by the power of God and brought all the way to completion to stand before God and there to His glory and His praise, the creation responds. That's what Paul has in view as he prays for the Philippians. It's because of the work of God in the Philippians that Paul could say in verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's because of the work of God that, that we read so often at the end of Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And it's in view of that that Paul prays, God, make them have a love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent. Now, I'm going to bring these different motives together and you may have already grasped this and if you have, then I'm not trying to offend but in case you haven't, there's this ultimate primary motive that he has or goal. And there's a secondary goal. And then there are, if you will, kind of the daily steps that he has in mind that the Philippians must do and that God must supply them with so that they would reach either of those goals. And I was thinking about it kind of like this. Imagine that you decide, if you're like me, you decide again, <laughs> To get in shape. All right? I want to be healthier. And that's 
That's like the goal. I want to be healthier than I am now. And maybe as a means toward getting healthier, you decide to, to start running. And as a goal to help you in that endeavor, you decide I want to run a race of whatever length. We'll say a 10K. I want to run a 10K. And so there's a goal. I want to run a 10K. I want to finish this race. But it's a secondary goal. The greater goal is I want to be healthier. But if you're ever going to finish that 10K race, you've got to get up and start running. You've got to run a quarter of a mile before you can run 6.2 miles. You've got to start eating better. You know, there are things that you've got to do. There are changes that have to be made. And so there are these daily things that you start to put into practice because there's this goal of, I want to finish this 10K and there's this date on this 10K and I've got to start moving so I can get there. But even when you get there, that's just, it's a secondary goal that helps you get to the primary goal of, I want to be healthier. So Paul says, you need to have this abounding love so that you can approve the things that are excellent. You need to be able to do this. And this is a day in, day out kind of thing. You stand needy of this, but you also have to exercise this. You need to learn to distinguish between the things that differ. Love the thing that's best so that you do that. This is like getting up every day and going running. But it's in view of the fact that one day I'm going to stand before Christ. And I need to live sincerely and blameless along the way. I need a life that's transparent. It's not causing other people to stumble. And when that day comes and I stand before Him, I don't want to cringe because I have mixed motives and I have caused people to stumble. But even that's the secondary goal. The bigger goal, the primary goal is to the glory and praise of God. I want to stand there on that day not cringing to the glory and praise of God. Well, let me give you a few applications. There are quite a few, but let me give you a few. Fewer than there are. <laughs> First, as you read Paul's prayer here, present grace stirs Paul to pray for more grace. And if God gives us the record of Paul's prayers as uh, an example for us, then we should be stirred by the same thing. Present grace stirs Paul to pray for greater grace. Do you ever feel the temptation to only pray for those people who are in crisis or for what you feel like are the crisis areas of your life? And so there are the areas that maybe aren't in crisis. I think I got it pretty well over here. This is going all right, but this isn't going so well. And so maybe you only mention this over here in passing, but you labor over here because this is what you feel is important. And, you know, it's over here where things are terrible. Or there's this person over here you're really concerned about. And this person seems to be doing so pretty well. And so you really spend your time over here on what seems to be going terribly I was thinking of the letters in the New Testament where we know that there were issues. Paul's letters. And so the letter to the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Anybody think that Paul didn't pray for the Galatians? Anybody? 
Surely he prayed for the Galatians. But there's no prayer recorded in Galatians. The church at Corinth, with all of its problems, anybody think Paul didn't pray for the Corinthians? But there's not a prayer recorded. But here's the Philippians. I thank God every time I think of you. My every remembrance of you spurs me to thank God. And remembering the grace of God toward you, how you became a partner with me in the gospel, I pray for you. I pray that a love that you already have would abound still more and more. Grace that he sees active in the lives of the Philippians stirs him to pray for them that they would have greater grace. What about us? You can think of your individual life, your family at home, right? Because I'm not going to give you time right now. And we can't go row by row, right? But let's think about us as a church. God has been kind to us as a church. Remarkably kind. Should that kindness be perceived as a reason to take it easy, be indulgent, or even presumptive, Or should it stir us to pray for more grace? Well, if we follow Paul's pattern, it should stir us to pray for more grace. God, you've been kind. Would you be kinder still? You've been kind, but we are so needy that our love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. God, fill us with the fruits of righteousness which come through Jesus Christ. We can't get them ourselves. We can't produce them, but God, you can. As you think about your part of this body, as you think about God's work at Christ Church, has it led you to... A feeling of like we've reached an area uh, or a level of independence or a level of maturity where we're not as needy as we used to be. If you think that way, it is a, a mistaken thought. It is wrong. We are as needy as ever. God has been kind, but He could remove His pleasure in a moment. I want to give you a few things just as I think is a demonstration of God's kindness. I think I look at these things and I think, wow. So not in any sense to think, boy, we're doing well. I don't mean that. God's been kind. But God, would you do more? You know, the sermons that are preached are put on sermon audio. And um, they give you all these kind of analytics. And I don't generally look at them, but... I went and looked at them today so I can tell you this. There are 1,204 sermons online on Sermon Audio. And there are other places that have a lot more sermons than that. But that's what we have. Since we began putting sermons on Sermon Audio, they've been downloaded 273,308 times. That blows my mind. 
I don't know why anybody would down any of the ones I preached, you know. 273,308 times. It's, it's probably not a lot compared to some, but that that many people have downloaded sermons from this little church in New Albany is remarkable. Just since August 1, there have been 923 downloads from 41 states and 22 countries. It blows my mind. That God would use us in that way. That the gospel would go out in that way to so many different places. But it's no reason to rest. It's no reason to think we've got it together. But God, as you've been kind, would you be kinder still? I was thinking of John's travels. He didn't know I was going to say this. Um, when the first Behold Your God came out, I remember John and myself and Lanny talking about there probably come a time when John gets a lot of invitations to go. And he has gotten invitations over the years, and he's turned a lot of them down, especially, I think, conferences where he doesn't feel like his time is as well spent. But God recently has been opening up opportunities for him to go and speak to men who seem to be really hungry. So with Heart Cry into Canada and other places, he's, he's going and they're asking him to speak about things that you hear here. And not just to, to a church, that's, that's good, but to men who will then go to churches and impact those churches, hopefully. Well, that's the kindness of God. It really is. And we should pray that God would use that to His glory in those places. And it would spread from there. You know, Humanly speaking, why would anybody want to come and listen to anything anybody in New Albany has to say? But God has opened these doors. And the kindness that he's shown, even in that, should stir our hearts to ask God for greater measures of kindness. Whereas God brings people. May we be faithful with the people that he's brought. But God, bring more. Not because of numbers per se, but God, bring more because they're souls. And we want to see people coming into the kingdom of God. We can't take it for granted that the way it is is the way that it will always be. We should cry out to God and ask Him to continue to bless us and to make us constantly feel our need of Him. Well, another thing. Within these prayers, and we'll just say this prayer because this is the one we're looking at, there is a theology of the Christian life that Paul expresses. He prays intelligently. He's not just throwing out words. And so his prayer demonstrates several things about the Christian life. One is that the Christian life is a life that's characterized by continuous growth. Again, think about what he prays. He doesn't say you don't have any love. Oh, I wish you had some love. But the love that you have, God, would you give them a love that abounds still more and more? Or the fruit of righteousness. You have been filled with the fruit of righteousness. But he prays that they'll continue to be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ to the glory and praise of God. So you've got some, but God, give them more. And within that idea, I see expressed this, that the Christian life is characterized by growth. We see it in his description of his own life, his, himself, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, 
but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't give us any room either for himself or the Philippians, and by extension, I would say for us. He doesn't give us any room for complacency. Remember, he's convinced of verse 6. God will complete what he started. And yet he prays, God, make them abound. God, fill them with the fruit of righteousness. There is the expectation that we live fruitful lives. Lives of increasing fruitfulness. And so, once again, I'll say there's no room for complacency. But now let me ask you. Have you grown complacent? So I'm not talking about as a church body now, but you, your spiritual walk. Have you grown complacent? Now, if you would say, no, I don't think so. Let me ask this question. Do your prayers bear witness Of the fact that you haven't grown complacent. Paul is praying for more. Do your prayers express that? God, more. More of Christ. God, more love to Christ. God, more love to others. God, more faith. God, more boldness. God, more zeal for your glory. When was the last time you cried out to God for more compassion for sinners? More wisdom to be the spouse or the parent or the child that you should be to the glory of God? Do your prayers line up with what you say about complacency? The Christian life is one that is to be characterized by continuous growth. And our zeal for that is reflected in our prayers. A second way these prayers reflect on the Christian life. The Christian life is a life lived in fellowship with and independence upon Jesus Christ. Paul expresses this in a couple of ways, but one is in verse 11 again, where he speaks of having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. Paul knew the situation in Philippi. He's not under any illusions that their lives will bear any fruit to the glory of God apart from Jesus Christ. The only way they're going to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness, is through Jesus. In union with Jesus. Remember how he addressed them back in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints who to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The saints who are in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ was not just a, a, a uh, an abstract concept for Paul or you know, a doctrine in a book. He brings the, this theological thought of this gathered body of believers 
made to be saints by Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus, he brings this thought into his prayers as he prays for them. Fill them with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus Christ. This doctrinal idea comes down into his prayer and he expects it to bear fruit. He's echoing the language of John 15, isn't he? There Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. My father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This fruitfulness is glorifying to God, but this fruitfulness is dependent upon Christ Jesus. You must abide in me. If you don't abide in me, you can't do anything. You won't bear fruit. Paul wrote in Galatians 2, 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I live by faith, dependent upon Christ. One more. As expressed here in this prayer, the Christian life is a life that's lived in light of the day of Christ. Here, you could imagine that you are a member of this Philippian church where there's only portions of Scripture perhaps available. And Paul is writing from jail. You hear there's this letter from him. And so you, the church gathers together. And as it's read, you hear that Paul says, This I pray. As you hear, Paul's about to pray for me. This is what he prays for me. Would you not lean in and think, What, Paul? What are you praying for me? And so he tells them, This is what I'm praying, that your, your love would abound still more and more. You'd be filled with the fruit of of righteousness and through Christ Jesus. And then you hear that he prays for you in view of the day of Christ. Would you not think to yourself, would you not understand that if Paul's praying for me in view of the day of Christ, then I'd better live in view of that day. I'd better pursue growth in view of that day. To the Thessalonians, in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes about the report that he's hearing about the Thessalonians. He says, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. You've turned... To God, you've turned away from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait. They're living in light of that day with an anticipation. And now to the Philippians in this, this little paragraph, he says it twice in verse 6. Again, I'm confident 
of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then again in verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That was the wrong verse, wasn't it? Uh, The previous verse. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, that sounds good and fine. And I don't think any of you would disagree with it, at least in theory. We should live in light of that day. You may think, yes, I'm all for that. But let me ask you, just this past week, have you lived in light of this day? This reality? Has that reality occupied your thoughts? Has the thought of that shaped your thinking and your choices? It's easy to get busy with good things, with responsibilities that are necessary. But if you would have an abounding love, if you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness, I don't see from the New Testament that it will be a possibility if you do not keep this perspective in light of, in view of the day of Christ. Do you need to confess to God the sin of being too occupied with the things of this world so that you have failed to live in light of eternity? To the Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead, the immorality, impurity. He gives this list. In light of that day, consider this. Live this way. Set your mind there. Well, may God help us to live in light of that day and in light of the things we just talked about and fill us with the fruit of righteousness and a love that abounds still more and more. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the certainty of your work and that you never fail in your work. We thank you, Father, that the very things that you call us to do, you also empower us to do, you equip us to do. So, God, we pray that we would take these things seriously and live in light of eternal realities, that truths that are high and that are stretched for us to think about will be brought down into living tonight and tomorrow. And it will be to the glory and praise of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.